check the description box for a full list of citations. A gobbit exercise consists of taking a segment of a text and closely analysing it in terms of its validity and what we can discover about the writer and the time period that they are writing in. This section that I'm going to look at is from Ovid's Metamorphosis 15821-833 from the Moore translation. It talks about Augustus. I'm going to begin by reading the gobbit to you. The valiant son will plan revenge on those who killed his father and will have our aid in all his battles. The defeated walls of scarred mutina, which he will besiege, shall sue for peace. Pharsalia's plain will dread his power and Macedonian Philippi will be drenched with blood a second time. The name of one claimed as great shall be subdued in the Sicilian waves. Then Egypt's queen, wife of the Roman general Antony, shall fall. While vainly trusting in his word, while vainly threatening that our capital must be submissive to Canopus's power, why should I mention all the barbarous lands in the nations east and west by ocean's rim? Whatever habitable earth contains shall bow to him, the sea shall serve his will. With peace established over all the lands, he will then turn his mind to civil rule, and as a prudent legislator will enact wise laws. Publius Ovidius Naso, Ovid, writes Metamorphosis in support of Augustus. The poets under the patronage of Gaius Mechanus, a political supporter and friend of the Caesar, offered a biased but interesting account of the values Augustus wished to perpetuate, namely his fated divinity, peaceful nature, and the immorality of Marcus Antony. The first point is emphasizing the role of fate and the divine support of Augustus. Metamorphosis is an adapted, interwoven collection of both Hellenistic and Roman mythologies. The selected passage is taken from Ovid's Metamorphosis Book 15, in which he focuses predominantly on the concept of fate. Lines 821 to 833 utilize direct speech from Jove, consoling Cythria as she despairs Julius's fate to be assassinated, beginning the valiant son will plan revenge on those who killed his father and will have our aid in all his battles. Ovid succeeds in presenting Augustus's actions taken in vengeance as both endorsed by the gods and inevitable. Virgil also presents Augustus as, quote, promised oft and long foretold, end quote, with both poets using future tense when speaking of his deeds. This tense generates a past mythological canon that legitimizes Augustus's deification. The second point is Augustus's peaceful nature. Just as Augustus does in Resgaste, Ovid erases the violence of the vengeance by opting to emphasize Augustus's peaceful nature. Quote, the defeated walls of scarred mutineer, which he will besiege, shall sue for peace. End quote. The presentation echoes Augustus's claim that, quote, those who butchered my father I drove into exile, avenging their crime by legal judgments, end quote. Glossing over the reality that the legal judgments he refers to are the execution of, quote, more than 3,000 members of the upper class in a Sullian-style prescription, end quote. 
In support of this reality, Apayan describes the period's civil discord as, quote, worse than ever, end quote. As seeking vengeance, Augustus was, quote, not sparing even their friends and brothers, end quote. Suetonius too paints a graphic picture of Augustus, quote, not using his victory with moderation, end quote, rather ruthlessly refusing to spare anyone. The contrasting versions highlight the aim of both Metamorphosis and Rescaste to present Augustus as peaceful rather than vengeful. The third point is the condemnation of Mark Antony as immoral. Ovid paints the demise of Cleopatra as a failure of the Roman general Antony. Ovid focuses on Cleopatra instead of the Battle of Actium, where Marcus Antonius's forces were defeated by Marcus Agrippa, stating simply, quote, Then Egypt's queen, wife of the Roman general Antony, shall fall while vainly trusting in his word. End quote. The choice of wife is interesting, as Antony was never married to Cleopatra. His wife at the time was Octavia, Augustus's sister. The affair with Cleopatra became public knowledge when Augustus, quote, had the will which Antony had left in Rome, naming his children by Cleopatra among his heirs, opened and read before the people, end quote, which Suetonius claims was intended to, quote, better show his rival had fallen away from conduct becoming a citizen, end quote. The condemnation of Antony as untrustworthy by Ovid and un-Roman by Suetonius supports the public perception that immoral behaviours are the downfall of Roman citizens, and that Antony was evidence of that. The fourth point is Augustus as the moral leader. Ovid's passage finishes with the following, quote, He will then turn his mind to civil rule, and as a prudent legislator will enact wise laws, end quote. These wise laws are outlined by Ovid as moral changes, declaring, quote, he will regulate the manners of his people, end quote. This comment, following the moralistic condemnation of Antony, supports the idea that the Roman strife was caused by the drift away from traditional values. Ovid's presentation of Augustus as the moral leader of Rome is aided by the contrast of Antony's adultery. Ovid's prophecy of Augustus functions in very much the same way as Virgil's does. It seeks to place the real-life Augustus within the mythological canon of literature. Ovid outlines this integration stating, quote, Now Jupiter rules in high heavens, and now Augustus rules in all the lands, so each is both a father and a god, end quote. Consequently, making Augustus's divinity undeniable. <laughs>